wanted to learn a, a second language, or a yeah, second language, because first of all, I'm full of admiration for folk who are multilingual. We have several people in our church that can speak more than one language. But also, I wanted to learn a second language because as you get older, I, I understand that you need to keep your brain active. And so one of the ways that you can actually do that is to learn something new. And it's always been suggested that a, a language is really good for you. So what I did, I set about finding an app that I could run on my mobile phone, on my tablet, that would help me to learn a language. And when I thought about the languages that I could learn, I thought, well, I could, I could learn French. I had, a, I had a GCE in French, but I only just passed that exam. And I was never very good at French. So I thought, well, maybe that's not such a good idea. And then one of my colleagues at work actually has a first class degree in Spanish. So I thought, well, that, that maybe I should start with Spanish because if I get stuck, I can ask her for help. So I, I, I settled on Spanish and several people have said to me that Spanish is actually quite an easy uh, language to, to learn. So I managed to find an app that I could run on my, on my phone, which I was happy with. It, it not only taught me how to pronounce certain things, how to pronounce words, but also um, it gave me some uh, insight into the grammar that you need to learn as well with any language. I started out quite enthusiastic and uh, although I wasn't in a position where I felt comfortable talking to someone who was Spanish without any embarrassment, I really was starting to enjoy it. But then there was a problem. And the problem was that I stopped. After five months, I stopped. And I don't know why. I can't remember what caused me to put it to one side and not to pick it up again. And now when I look back, I look back with a degree of regret because had I kept it up, I would have been doing it for sort of 18 months, two years. And I think I would have got to the point by now where I would be able to speak something in Spanish and actually understand what I was saying. But I stopped and maybe one day I will start again. How about you? What are you like in terms of keeping things going? Once you started something, are you able to keep it going? In truth, it makes little difference to anybody else if I can speak Spanish or not. We do have some neighbors who can speak Spanish. I think they may well be Spanish. And they sent us a Christmas card this year and they put on it Feliz Navidad, which actually means Happy Christmas. I can remember that, but I could have guessed anyway, because what else are they gonna write on the Christmas card? But there are some things, you know, that we, we do that we need to keep on doing, that we mustn't grow lax with. Things that matter not just in the here and now, but also for eternity. And I'd like to think about some of those things this morning as we turn to God's Word.
The words that we read earlier from Matthew's Gospel record the reply that Jesus gave to that Pharisee. He asked the question, which is the greatest commandment? And in his answer, Jesus quoted from the Old Testament, firstly from the book of Deuteronomy, and then from Leviticus. Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. But if we turn back for a moment to the previous chapter in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 5, we find an occasion where Moses was gathering the people of Israel together. And he said this to them, Hear, Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. And I've highlighted a couple of words there. Moses wanted to stress to the nation of Israel that what God was doing was making an agreement with them personally. God was making a covenant with us. After this, he then went on in the following chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 6, what we know as the Ten Commandments. And Moses was seeking to stress how important it was that the people kept them. This is what he said to them. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down, when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Moses was trying to make it very clear how important it was for the people to obey these commands. Now, you know, when you actually read something, you can't always, well, you can't hear the person's voice. You can't necessarily understand how they were delivering those things. So it's good to try and put ourselves into Moses' shoes at this point and perhaps try and recognize what he might have been stressing. So I've highlighted a few things. And let me just read some of those highlighted words. So having actually given the command, Moses says, says, impress them, impress what I'm saying to you on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses. You wonder what more Moses could actually say or do to get the message across. When I was writing this, I kind of imagined 
Moses, almost tearing his hair out, trying to get what he wanted to say across to the people. It was a, such an important message. This was the agreement that God had made with the people. And God wanted, uh, Moses wanted the people to understand. Now, let's go back to the reading that we had from Matthew. When Matthew was relating this, this uh, incident between the teacher and Jesus. I don't imagine that Jesus was tearing his hair out when he replied uh, to, to the questioner. Nevertheless, he did answer the question with something that was very important. What he said was this, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Jesus said that he basically was reducing all the substance of the Old Testament law, all the substance of the teaching of the prophets to these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's an amazing statement that Jesus said. All that's gone before in terms of the law, all that's gone before in terms of what the prophets have said, come down to just these two things. Love God and love your neighbor. Now in Luke chapter 10, we actually find another incident that is very similar to the one that we've looked at in Matthew. Another expert in the law approaches Jesus, but asks him a different question. This time he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus in his, his unique way, turns that question back on his questioning. And he asks him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the expert replied by quoting the two passages that we've just seen, the one from Deuteronomy and the one from Leviticus. And Jesus affirms to the guy that his answer is correct. But this expert in the law wasn't fully satisfied. He wanted to justify himself by seeking more clarification from Jesus. And so he asked Jesus, well, well, who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And at this point, Jesus tells a parable. He tells the parable of the Good Samaritan that I'm sure we all know. We can find this in Luke chapter 10 as well. In the essence of the story, the essence of the parable of the Good Samaritan is that the religious men would not offer help. They passed by on the other side. But it was the Samaritan person, the Samaritan man, that was willing to actually ignore convention, ignore tradition, ignore protocol to attend to the wounded, a wounded traveler. He ensured that he was taken to a place of safety 
where he would receive all the care that he required. So Jesus asked the questioner at that point, who is the neighbor? Who is the neighbor to the wounded man? And the expert in the law replied, the man who helped him, the Samaritan. And equally, vice versa was true, the wounded man was the neighbor to the Samaritan. And I suppose we need to ask the question ourselves here, what do we get from this? What do we glean from this? Who is our neighbor? And I think what Jesus was saying, everyone apart from ourselves is our neighbor. Anyone that we see in need is our neighbor. We need to be a neighbor to them. Now, you know, Jesus delivered a lot of his teaching through the use of parables, through the use of stories. Because he knows that stories help people to remember, to remember his point. But sometimes he knew that it needed more than a story. It needed a powerful illustration that would make a real impact on those that were with him. So just before Passover, when he was gathered in a room with his disciples, and just as they were about to begin a meal, he got up from that meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. He got a basin and put water into it. And he began to wash his disciples' feet and then drying their feet with a towel. When Peter protested and tried to resist what Jesus was doing, Jesus told him straight, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Those are pretty strong words from Jesus. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. There was no, no room for error in what Jesus was saying. No room for any misunderstanding. Jesus was being very blunt with Peter. So when he had finished drying their feet, washing their feet, Jesus went back to where he was sat, put on his outer clothing. And he said this to them. Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also, <clears throat> excuse me, should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Notice Jesus' expectation. I have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do, said Jesus. He goes on to say, truly I tell you that no servant is greater than his master. No messenger is greater than the one who sent him. And now that you know these things, 
you will be blessed if you do them. Now the message puts it slightly differently. It says, if you understand what I'm telling you, act like it and live a blessed life. I just catch a glimpse there in those words, a bit like Moses was stressing so powerfully, or as powerfully as he could to the nation of Israel, that they had to take those commands seriously, that it was so important that they followed what, Jesus, what God was saying to them. Just in these words of the message, I just get that same flavor. Act like it. What Jesus was saying was so important. And Jesus basically underscored the importance of these words by then saying something else to them. He said to them, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And notice how he's changed the words here from should to must. This is so important. You must love one another. So at this point, I just want to ask the question, well, how much? How much do we, want, do we need to love one another? If we continue in John's Gospel, we come to a passage where Jesus is talking about himself being the vine and the Father being the gardener and his disciples being the branches. And after he makes his way through describing those interrelationships, he says this, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is my command, love one another. Now before Christmas, as we were going through the Advent Sundays, we thought about the nature of God's peace and his joy. And we noted that God's kingdom is a kingdom of abundance, of plenty. And Jude opened his letter with this greeting, may, may mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you, be yours in abundance. Our God is a generous God and he wants us to be generous in every way. And when we think about the Samaritan, he was generous in his provision for that wounded man. He took him to the innkeeper and he gave the innkeeper sufficient money for immediate care and attention. But he said to the innkeeper, when I come back, if you've spent more than I have given you, I will give you sufficient to cover the expense. God is a generous God. And in a moment, we're going to um, spend a little bit of time reflecting on a song that we know, a song called Reckless Love. And this particular song has um, some words in it, which I think describes again, Jesus's unlimited love. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, no lie you won't tear down. 
coming after me. That just captures, I think, the extent to what the extent to which God will come after us, come after others, and want us to go after others in, with his love. The apostle James, of John, sorry, certainly had grasped the message from Jesus. And as, we, as I begin to close, let's just look at what he said in his first epistle, chapter 3. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And I don't think John was saying we need to necessarily die, but we need to put our lives on the table, if you like. We ought to lay down our lives sacrificially for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or deed, but, sorry, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And the Apostle Paul also understood what Jesus was saying to his disciples. Because he wrote a letter to the church in Galatia. And he was concerned about a group of people associated with that church which, who were trying to say to the new Gentile Christians, look, you, I know it's a gospel of grace. I know you, you are saved by grace, but you must also adhere to the, the rites of, of passage of Judaism. And Paul was really concerned about that because one of the rites that they were trying to get the Gentile Christians to conform to was circumcision. And Paul wrote, wrote in his letter, for in Christ Jesus, in the gospel of grace that we enjoy, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value, none at all. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Faith expressing itself through love is the only thing that matters. So how do we make this applicable? How, how do we apply this ourselves? How do we keep this up? Because this is what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to love, to share his love. And he wants us to keep up with it. Unlike my Spanish, which I didn't keep up. We need to love people and to maintain it. Hopefully all of you have received a copy of the church profile. We sent it out a, a month or two ago. And in the church profile, uh, we put down our vision for the church, the vision of the elders for the church going forward. And I just want to draw your attention to it. Because basically our vision is based on what we've been thinking about this morning. The first part of our vision is for us to be a church that loves our neighbor to such an extent that he or she experiences God's love for themselves through us. 
and is drawn into that relationship with him. You know, as well as what we've been looking at this morning, we're very conscious as an eldership that the last thing that Jesus said was, go into all the world and make disciples to obey my commands. So we want to love people into the kingdom. People are drawn into the kingdom by our love. We also want to support and guide every person once they've come to faith, but they learn to love God more. They come to understand God's grace and mercy more. And then they, if you like, demonstrate their understanding and they fulfill Jesus' commands by loving others. And lastly, we want to increase the love that we have for one another within our own fellowship. That's our vision for the future. That's how we want to actually try and embrace and to apply the teaching that Jesus not only gave to his first disciples, but to us who are his disciples too. And so how do we take this further? Well, we're going to take it further next week. I said in the letter that went out to you that this was a two-part series. And I want us to try and answer these two questions. What does love require of us? What does love require of me? And this is how you now the point that you can get involved in the next couple of days. Because what I, I invite you to do, either later this afternoon while this message is fresh in your heart and in your mind, or maybe tomorrow when you get a chance. Just sit down and think about the different ways that you connect with friends and family and your neighbors. What are the different ways that you are already expressing your care and the love of Jesus to those around you? It may be people who don't yet know Jesus. It may be people who do know Jesus. But what are the ways that you are basically using to reach people. And if you can let me know by either email or posting me a letter, preferably earlier in the week, what I want to do is try next Sunday to incorporate some of these things. It's not just to pat ourselves on the back, but it's to encourage one another and show each other what is possible. Because as a church, Jesus is calling us to love him, but to love our neighbor. And we've got to find ways that we can do that. In, in, we've got to find practical ways that we can do it. Ways that we can sustain and ways that will bring people to Christ. So what does love require of us? What does love require of me? We'll look at more of this next week.